Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. C.S. Lewis, in his letters to an American lady, made this statement. There are, aren't there, only three things we can do about death. To desire it, to fear it, or to ignore it. I'd like to submit to you that believers who have thought the most about the next life have actually also been the ones who have accomplished for the Lord the most in this life. And those who have not ignored death, but have listened to what God's word has to say about it, are less likely to fear it, and even in a healthy way, to desire it. So let's listen to what God's word tells us about death and the next life. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up By life, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Lord. We need to hear what you have to say about this life and the next. Will you use your word to remove fear for your people? To remove any dread that is there? Will you encourage and comfort your people from your word by your Holy Spirit? And we pray this In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
Now, I want to tell you, in case you're wondering, that uh, this whole book is not about death, Second uh, Corinthians. Uh, last week and this week, uh, of course, it's, it's all one passage. I've broken it down and uh, by necessity, uh, but next week we move on to a very wonderful uh, passage as well that I'm excited about. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, this three things, this present state, the transition, and the future state, or the final state. And so we will, as, as always, be focusing upon the Word of God, be doing some theology in there, uh, and, and yet this is so practical in terms of uh, considering what all of us need to consider in terms of our own death at some point. So let's first of all look at uh, the, the present state, ver- uh, verse 1. In this passage, Paul contrasts the present with the future state, and he says several things about our bodies. Verse 1, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then to understand it, we need to, to understand as well that what he's saying is that what's going on right now, this is not our final state, which I think is good. I think is encouraging, right? With everything that's going on, this is not it. What if it was? How discouraging would that be? And yet we know and we should see when, when things seem to be in chaos, we should take that as a reminder that this isn't it. This isn't where, where we will get our ultimate satisfaction and hope. But there is something much better to come. Look what he says in uh, verse 2 for. In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And then on down in verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Now there's several things uh, here. To describe our bodies and our present status, he uses the term a tent. He, He calls our bodies, which are earthly home, uh, a tent, it's the same word that, that we see elsewhere in the scripture for tabernacle. Um, but I think we should consider it, rather than think of some grand tabernacle where worship of God went on, which was not as grand as the temple itself, we should think more in terms of uh, a, a tent in this way. What he says here is, it's able to be destroyed. So, rather than think of this strong tabernacle, for instance, what Paul is communicating is that, that we, we basically have a two-man pup tent that you bought at Dollar General. And I'm not putting down Dollar General. 
It's my kind of store. I get all my suits there and everything. So, <laughs> but it's a, at Dollar General. You know, it's that kind. So that the the cover is flimsy. The uh, there's no bottom to it. Um, the poles are rickety. It's, it's, it's fine on a calm night full of stars. But if the storm comes, it's not at all sufficient. And he says, yeah, what we're in right now is apt to be destroyed. He says we groan and he tells us whether we, we know it or not. It's because of a longing to put our on our future resurrection body. Now, the way he says this, you know, why do we groan? Because there is a discomfort in our present state. We we have limitations, like we talked about last week. Paul talks about us wasting away. Uh, We see it and we deal with it. And then down in verse 6, he says, so we... uh, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. So in, in the Greek here, uh, there's really a word play. Uh, what he's, he's done is he uses the same root word for home and away. So he's basically saying we're at home and then we will be from home. Uh, it's like we live, we, we live abroad, um, and, and the latter is like someone who lives abroad. So let's do some biblical theology for a moment. Biblical theology is always see, is seeing how a, a truth fits in, not just to this chapter, but to the, the whole of, of Scripture. We have the garden. And in the garden, there's no sin, no death. Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. Adam sins. He's our representative. Shame comes into the world, as does sickness and corruption and death. Christ comes to redeem his people, as is promised in Genesis 3.15. He takes on death for us. But while we're in this life, we're living in a fallen world. We talked a a good deal about that last week. If you didn't hear it, you can go back and and hear more about it. But what reverses the fall is first the death of Jesus and then our own death. Because it's not until we die that we will experience a freedom from living in a fallen world. When we're in that new state of being, finally, we won't be affected by the fall. So let's, let's look at that and, and look at the, the transition, as I'm calling it, verse 3 and 4. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, 
so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And you're, you're going, what? Where, where's he going with this? Why does he uh, use the word naked and unclothed? Well, most people normally shudder at the idea of dwelling naked. That's another reason uh, to groan. By the way, if you don't have a problem with that thought of dwelling naked, I have some cards of some very good counselors that I can refer you to. <laughs> it's just normal for, for us to uh, say, oh, that's weird. That's, you know, why? Well, remember, because their sin came into the world and with the sin came shame. And so that's one of the reasons that, that he would use a term like that uh, but the word translated naked was a word that, that uh, the secular people of that day would use for what, what we might call a disembodied spirit, a spirit without a body. So, back to some theology here. Uh, he's, he is describing what we would call the intermediate state. I called it the transition because that, that makes sense. But uh, typically in theology, this is called the intermediate state. Now, let me begin by telling you what the intermediate state is not. Uh, it's not some kind of a soul sleep. Uh, some think that uh, uh, they'll be, when they die, they'll be somehow unconscious maybe even still in their body in the grave, but unconscious of it until Jesus comes back and then they will receive their new body and so on. So there'll be a period of time or in some people's cases, centuries would be their view, where uh, they, they would be totally unconscious. We find that nowhere in the scripture. Nowhere in the scripture. The term sleep is used in terms of the death of a believer, but that's used not as some kind of a euphemism, but because it's something that we don't need to fear any more than we need to fear sleep. Now, I know as a child, as an immature person, we don't, we don't look forward to sleep, right? You don't want to sleep. But the older we get, right? You know where I'm going with that. We look forward to that and say, ah, this is good. And so, so that's why it's, it's described in that way, not because there's some kind of a soul sleep. Secondly, it's not a time uh, of an intermediate place you go while, while your sins are being paid for so that then you can be released to heaven like a purgatory. It is not that. That is found nowhere in the word of God. Okay, so it's not those things. Well, what is it? The souls of all men and women maintain consciousness after death. For the believer, their soul enters immediately into a state of blessedness. I love what Dwight Moody said. He said, 
Soon you will read in the newspaper that I am dead. Don't believe it for a moment. I will be more alive than ever before. You see, that's, that's a truth. Now, think of Jesus' promise to the thief on the cross who had repented. He didn't say, today you're going to fall asleep and then one day I'll come back for you and, uh, you know, it, it, nothing like that. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me. Look at what Paul says in verse 6 and 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. You see, no time between death and presence with Christ. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So this is speaking of the act of dying when the believer is away from the body. He will immediately be with the Lord. So here's what we can know. When a believer dies and they take that last breath here on earth, even if you're right there with them, they are experiencing the Lord before you even know they've died. I'm convinced of that. That's what it's saying. It's that quick. Paul in Philippians 1 said this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now how could he say that? He says if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If I keep living, then you know I'll, I'll do ministry and serve the Lord. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. So even though he saw purpose in this life, he was, and I think here's an example of a healthy desire for his own death. He was good with that. Lord, as long as you leave me here, I'm going to serve you. But I know there's something way, way better than this. To die, he said, is gain. Okay, so let me burst another bubble here. Um, I only burst bubbles because I think we need to think biblically about things. And when you hear a perspective numerous times, uh, it needs to be addressed. But this is the kind of perspective that I, I never address at a funeral or when somebody's just lost somebody or... I don't even correct people when they say it. That's why we're, we're doing it here. We sometimes hear people in talking about somebody's death, a, a death of a believer, say, well, at least they have their new body now. They're enjoying their new body. Well, here's the biblical perspective. Well, they really aren't yet enjoying their new body. They will, no doubt about it. And if there's some kind of a body in between, it's not the final resurrection body. 
they will experience that when Jesus comes back. And that's another reason why we should long for his coming because that will be our final state. And that's what Paul's talking about in terms of the future and the final state. Back to verse 1 again. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So by my emphasis, I hope you've quickly uh, seen the difference here. Uh, we, we talked about the, the tent. It's going to be destroyed, but God is making a building that will never be destroyed, a house, a new body, that we will live in forever. That will be our new body. And that's our final estate, and that's what state, and that's what uh, he's talking about when we will be finally clothed. In theology, we call that glorification. When we are glorified, that takes place at the coming again of Jesus. And that's what Paul was longing for. And if we understand it rightly, it should cause us to long for it as well. Augustine wrote this, My thoughts in the deepest places of my soul are torn with every kind of tumult until the day when I shall be purified and melted into the fire of your love and wholly joined to you. God has made us for this very purpose. Remember we said there's a groaning and we don't even know what it is. I think he's described what it is, is, is you know, in this world, there may be some discomfort. Well, that's because this is not our final place. It's way better for the believer. So in the light of all this, Paul then gives an application in terms of what it should mean for believers. Look at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. He's saying whether, whether it's, it's it now, of course, for all eternity, that'll be our aim. But our aim now, every single day, should be to please him. And then he explains, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul is making it clear that while we look forward to the future life, and even, he even longed for it, we have an incentive in this life to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. See, if we didn't, if we didn't have this, we may say, well, I, I guess I can do whatever I want. I'm saved. doesn't matter what I do. And he says, wait, wait a minute, no. Now, he's not talking about salvation here and we've got to be absolutely clear about this everyone will appear before the judgment seat believers and unbelievers both for the unbeliever they will receive for eternity that which they've chosen for the believer 
the one trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal life, they'll be with the Lord forever. And that cannot be lost at the judgment seat. Paul is not the least bit worried about that. He said in Romans 8, 1, there is, he's not worried about condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's not worried about that. He's talking about what some would say, evaluation in terms of our life. That's addressing the only question that is left at that time, and that is, will Jesus say, well done? That's Paul's goal. It ought to be our everyday goal as well. I want to leave you with what I think is the ultimate heritage for believers that we can leave behind. Uh, C.S. Lewis was friends with Charles Williams. Uh, he, He was in a group called the Inklings, And they met in Oxford in this pub. Connie and I have been to that pub just because those guys used to meet there. Tolkien met there and and some others. And uh, they they were all writers and they would read their literature and their their fantasy stories, you know, to one another and that kind of thing. Get input and uh, as as C.S. Lewis said, we we would sit there and smoke and drink and read our, our our uh, writings to one another. Uh, But they were very, very close. Charles Williams was ill and went in the hospital. And uh, C.S. Lewis was going to visit him because it was on the day when the Inklings met. And when he got to the hospital, he found out that Williams had died. And uh, he said when he went and he told... He told uh, the friends that were there and didn't know he was at the point of death that he said it was like we were in a stupor for a period of time. Not that we were concerned about his salvation or anything like that, but but it it was kind of an unreal situation. But here's what Lewis concluded after going through that deep grief from his loss of his friend. He said, no event has so corroborated my faith in the next world as Williams did simply by dying. When the idea of death and the idea of Williams thus met in my mind, it was the idea of death that was changed. See what he's saying? That's the heritage that Williams left to his friends, to those who really, really loved him. he, He said it really became a reality that Williams lives on, and not just because we remember him, but he, Charles Williams, continued to live. Now, that's a heritage. Our testimony doesn't end when we get ill with our final illness. 
In fact, that may be our greatest opportunity to show what it is to walk by faith. May that be the testimony of those who see us at the end of our life. May God give us grace in that time to be a faithful witness for him. Let's bow together. Lord, I don't think there's anyone that looks forward to the process or the moments of death. And yet, Lord, will you give us a very real desire for that next moment, a healthy desire for that next moment when we will be with you forever. Lord, give us confidence in that, comfort in that, grace because of it, and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.